Thank you for joining us on the Salem Alliance Church Podcast. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit us at SalemAlliance.org. This week's message is by Brian Candelo. You know that helpless feeling of being in a scary situation and you have zero control? That feeling when you're just kind of going along and then all of a sudden you find yourself and everything's out of your control, but something is rising up inside of you, this level of nervousness, this angst, and you just, oh, I wish I could be in control of this situation. I have a great father-in-law, really a great guy. He's one of those guys that is very active. He's very creative. He can't sit still. He always has to be doing something with his hands. He was a high school math teacher, so he's very exacting and meticulous. He read a couple books, and then he built his house, like you do. Everything. He did the plumbing and the electrical, everything. Just read some books, built a house. After his house was done, he read a couple more books and built an airplane, just because that's what he wanted to do. He wanted to try that out as well, which, which kind of excited me, because I wanted to fly in that plane. I thought, what an awesome opportunity to fly in a plane like that, so, uh, which I really thought it was going to be a great opportunity until I actually saw the plane. We went on vacation. He lives in Western Pennsylvania at the time. And we go on vacation, and we go up to the hangar. And I see the plane. Now, I was not expecting Boeing, but I was expecting something more than what I saw. And this is a picture of the plane that he built. It's great, but I didn't realize that it would just be wood and fabric and wires and things like that flying this plane. So we push it out of the hangar onto the runway. And he's like, hang on to this. Wind will get under this thing. Flip it right over. Thanks so much for that. So we push it out, we line it up, and then when you get in, the pilot, it's a two-seater, and so he sits in the back, and I sit in the front. I can't see him at all. I'm just sitting there, and I'm staring at this, this really rudimentary panel here, especially this dial up here that's just a ball in a tube to see if we're level or not, and so we take off, and we're flying along at about somewhere between 60 and 70 miles an hour which is so slow when you're in the air. It feels like you're going to fall out of the sky at any moment. And so I have my camera, and then I look over and see this little sign here on the bottom right. And it's blurry because my hand was shaking. (laughs) This aircraft is amateur built and does not comply with the federal safety regulations for standard aircraft. (laughs) The sign should have just said, this guy built it. We're not really sure if it's going to fly. Don't blame us. And, and his math credentials, which seemed so impressive when we were on the ground, <laughs> did not seem so impressive when we were in the air because I had yet to put my life in the hands of his math credentials. I didn't have any control of the situation that I was in, and this feeling was starting to rise up in me. And I began not only to question his math credentials, I began to question his character. How much do I really know about this guy? He never liked me anyway. He never wanted me to marry his daughter. There's a picture at our wedding where I know he's saying, it's not too late. We can get out of here. I wasn't in control of the situation, which was causing this nervousness to rise in me. Because I didn't have anything to do with the building of the plane. Not that I would have known how anyway, but I didn't get the opportunity to look over his shoulder and you're not doing that right. I'd use more glue. I'd tighten that up. I'd do the thing that you're really supposed to do to make it fly. And I didn't have any control when when I was actually flying the plane. 
It was a helpless feeling that I had. We are people that like to be in control. And I don't think we want to be in control of everything. I don't want to be in control of the whole world, but I do want to be in control of my life. You see, I think we're less Jesus take the wheel people, and I think we're more, no, I got this kind of people. Because here's the thing. Sometimes we know better than God. Don't write that down. (laughs) Don't take a picture of the screen. Don't walk out of here being like, you want to hear what the pastor said? I don't think we believe this, but I think we live it. I think our actions oftentimes betray us because we spend a lot of our lives trying to impose our will upon God rather than submitting to his will. We spend a good portion of our lives trying to push our will onto God rather than submitting to his will. We want to be in control rather than surrender control. Today, we're finishing up a series called Identity Theft, and we're looking at three different lies that can devastate our identities. And the first is performance, the second is people-pleasing, and the third is control. The performance lie says that our value is based on what we do. Our value is based on how we perform. And the better that we perform, the more valuable that we are. The people-pleasing lie says that our value is based on what other people speak over us. And if other people speak good things over us, then we are good people. And if they speak bad things over us, then our identity takes a hit. And this morning, we're going to talk about control. And control is just this, the power to influence, direct, manage, I would say manipulate circumstances. And we try and do that. We try and manage and direct and manipulate people and circumstances and oftentimes even God. And our identity can get wrapped up in this. And yet if our identity is wrapped up in the lie of control, it will be devastating to us. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to talk about do we have an issue with control and and how that's linked to our identity. And we're going to look into scriptures and read a great story. But before we do all that, We want to begin with this foundational truth of who really is in control. And there's a lot of places in scripture that tell us who's in control. I think we know who's in control, even though sometimes we think we know better than God. But I love how 1 Chronicles 29 says it. This is King David, and he's praying, dedicating the temple that his son's going to build. And he says this, yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, the glory, the victory, and the majesty. Everything in the heavens and on earth is yours, O Lord, and this is your kingdom. We adore you as the one who is over all things. Wealth and honor come from you alone, for you rule over everything. Power and might are in your hand, and at your discretion, people are made great and given strength. I love that verse. This is who God is. God, yours is the greatness, the power, the glory, the victory, the majesty. You're the one who's over all things. You'll notice what that verse says. You'll also notice what that verse doesn't say. The verse does not say you're over all things except the things that I'm in control of, God. It doesn't say you move everything at your discretion, but I get discretionary control of this little area of my life. So why do we want to wrestle control from the one who can't be controlled? We see everything through a pinhole, and yet we want to take the wheel from the God who sees the beginning from the end. 
We want to fly the plane that we didn't build. We don't have a pilot's license. And yet we feel qualified to fly this plane. We like control. But control can be deceptive. You see, we know we don't want to be a control freak. Nobody ever says, you know what I like about them? They're a control freak. <laughs> we know we don't want to do that. But we like this idea of control. As a matter of fact, we take control and we put better terms on it. We give it a positive spin. We make it sound better. We say things like, it's called being a good manager. I'm just a details person. If no one else will do it right, I will. Well, what I do is I give constructive criticism. Failure is not an option. You see, we recognize when other people are control freaks and we don't really notice it in ourselves. So I want to give you a little bit of a quiz this morning. Uh, if some of these statements are true about you, you may or may not be a control freak. You can keep your own score. Uh, just give yourself one point for everything that you would kind of agree to or say yes to. You believe that if someone would change one or two things about themselves, they would be happier. So you try to help them change this behavior by pointing it out over and over and over again. Your prayers usually involve you telling God how your life could be better if he would blank. You are frequently mad at yourself thinking that if you had made one or two different decisions, everything could have turned out better. You make decisions for people because people can't be counted on to make decisions for themselves. You can't tolerate imperfection or failure. If you find yourself right now keeping score for the person next to you, <laughs> give yourself two points. <clears throat> right? If you keep elbowing your spouse, yep, that's you. You get a bonus point. You attempt to control others' opinions of you by changing who you are and what you believe. You aren't a good team player. You believe you are 100% responsible for your own success. You're a workaholic. You never delegate anything. Everything on your desk or workspace is at 90 degree angles. You spend a lot of time trying to prevent bad things from happening. You don't prepare for the storm. You try and prevent the storm. You're really proud of yourself that you just got a 100% on that quiz. <laughs> Control might be an issue in our lives. I think all of us are afflicted by this in varying degrees. And it messes with our identity. You see, when I can control certain people, when I can control certain circumstances and then produce good results, then I know I'm valuable. That's where my identity lies. That's where my value comes from. I work hard. And this is, this is God saying, you're a good person because you can do that. This is God's favor on your life. This becomes addictive to us. This is how we know we're on the right path when we can begin to manage situations and things turn out well. And we want to take more and more control of these situations. But the shadow side of having our identity linked to control is that not everything works out in our favor, does it? Because that's how life is. We know that it's not always going to work for us. And then when that happens, we become insecure and angry and irritable. And a sense of worthlessness begins to settle in upon us. 
A few weeks ago, Jennifer talked to us about our enemy, Satan, wants us either mad or disappointed with God or mad or disappointed with ourselves. And the issue of control will invariably leave us in one of those two camps. If we wrestle with control and something goes wrong, we go, God, why don't you love me? Why don't you care for me? Why didn't you step in and make this situation work out in my favor? And then we feel like God doesn't love us and we're worthless. Or we get mad at ourselves. If something doesn't go right, we go, oh, then obviously I did something wrong. Obviously, I'm a loser. Obviously, I'm not smart enough, good enough, competent enough that this situation didn't work out. And then we take that a step further and we say, well, if I caused it, then I can fix it. And that gives us a sense of of power in a broken situation. But it drives us further into this lie of control where we're like, well, it didn't work the first time, so I'm going to try and control it even more the second time. And the problem with that is it constantly has us surveying the landscape for our own shortcomings. So even though you might feel power of like, I can fix it, then you feel shame for having the problem in the first place. We end up either mad at God or mad at ourselves. And quite honestly, I blame math. There's a lot of things we can blame on math. But here's why. Because I think so many of us have bought into this idea that there are formulas, there are equations that we can plug into our lives to make our lives go better. That there are certain things that we can do to control the circumstances around us. And the problem with these formulas is Sometimes they work. And when they work, it just reinforces it, but they're way off base. We have this idea that if I do A and B, then naturally C will happen. And we have this in our faith as well. God, if I do A, and God, if I do B, then you have to do C. That's what the formula is as if there's some kind of magic combination of things that we can do to get God's attention. You know, I'll go to church three times a month and I'll pray, like really pray for like two whole minutes twice a week. And um, I'll call my mom and I'll send a card to that person and uh, volunteer in the nursery. And I'll have two Christian radio stations preset in my car. And so then this, obviously, I'm going to get God's attention by this, because that's, that's what the formula is. This is the formula that we see. Obedience plus integrity equals blessing. If I obey what God wants me to obey, if I live a good enough life, then God has to bless me. I know what Jeremiah 29:11 says. It says God has a plan for me. He wants to prosper me. I mean, never mind that we haven't ever really read the rest of that chapter, that it was written to a group of people in exile, not me specifically, but that's what the formula is. And maybe that's why you're in church here this morning. Maybe things haven't been going great for you and you feel like, ah, I'll get back into church, maybe earn a few Bible bucks and and God will have to pay attention to what my agenda is. But the Bible is not a book of formulas. The Bible is not a book of equations. There's principles. There's promises. We have promises for salvation. We have promises for forgiveness. We have promises for eternity. But there's not formulas that if we do this and this, God's going to make your life so much better. And even if you do find formulas in Scripture, they're not great formulas. 
Stephen followed Jesus, didn't end well. John the Baptist prepared the way for Jesus, didn't end well. Paul preached the gospel, didn't end well. These are the formulas that we see. As a matter of fact, we're going to take a closer look at a particular person in Scripture. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis chapter 39. If you want to grab one from the pew there and you can see really well, feel free to turn to page 35. And we're going to read the story of Joseph. It's one of the longest narratives in Scripture about a specific person. And the story starts in Genesis 37. And Joseph is a sharp-dressed kid with big dreams. He's 17 years old. He's got 11 other brothers, and somehow he's his dad's favorite. And his dad's not shy at letting everybody know that he's the favorite. So um, he buys him this brand new, colorful Patagonia jacket that he gets to wear around on cold mornings. And for all the other sons, he's like, hand-me-downs, hand-me-downs, hand-me-downs. Brand new jacket, hand-me-downs, hand-me-downs. You know, it's just not great parenting necessarily. And then Joseph starts having these amazing dreams. He's having dreams about stuff that bows down to him, you know, stuff on earth and then the sun and moon and stars. And it's very clear that this is his parents and brothers bowing to him. And of course, he doesn't keep it to himself. He has to tell everybody about it. And his brothers are furious and they want to kill him. But they decide that they will show mercy and we're not going to kill him. We'll just sell him into slavery. That'll be better. And so they sell him into slavery and he ends up in Egypt as a slave in the house of Potter, who's the captain of Pharaoh's guard. And that's kind of where we pick up the story. We're going to be in Genesis 39. Let's start in verse 2. Here's what it says. The Lord was with Joseph. And, and let's pause there, because I think this is so important for us to remember in the middle of this story. The Lord was with Joseph. The same God that gave him the dreams was with him when he got sold into slavery, is with him when he's a slave, is the same God who's going to be with him as the rest of this story plays out. God is with Joseph, so he succeeded in everything he did as he served in the home of his Egyptian master. Jump to verse 6, if you would. So Potiphar gave Joseph complete administrative responsibility over everything he owned. With Joseph there, he didn't worry about a thing except what kind of food to eat, living the dream. Joseph was a very handsome and well-built young man, and Potiphar's wife soon began to look at him lustfully. Come and sleep with me, she demanded. But Joseph refused. Look, he told her, my master trusts me with everything in his entire household. No one here has more authority than I do. He has held back nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How could I do such a wicked thing? It would be a great sin against God. And I love this. Here's Joseph sold into slavery away from everything he knows with every opportunity to just do what he wants to do. And yet he knows that it's not just a sin against him, not just a sin against her, not just a sin against Potiphar. It's a sin against God. And he says, I won't do it. Verse 10, she kept putting pressure on Joseph day after day, but he refused to sleep with her, and he kept out of her way as much as possible. One day, however, no one else was around when he went in to do his work. She came and grabbed him by his cloak, demanding, come on, sleep with me. Now, let's pause here. Think of all of the temptations that he was facing. I mean, sure, there's this initial fear when she approaches him, but does that ever drift into flattery? Like, oh, wait, she sees me. As a slave, she notices me. She likes me. 
And then it says this happened day after day after day. And we know what happens with temptation when it's just over and over and over again and our resistance begins to weaken. And then it says nobody was around. Nobody would know. Nobody would find out. You know, what's the big deal if nobody's ever going to really know about it? And he had so many temptations and so many opportunities to make excuses for behavior. But here's what it says. Joseph tore himself away, but he left his cloak in her hand as he ran from the house. He ran. He didn't care about appearances. He just booked it. And so we say, well played, Joseph. He didn't have control of his circumstances, but he had self-control. And so we applaud him. And this is the point where the formula kicks in, right? This is the part that God gives him his huge reward because we know that obedience plus integrity equals blessing. That's the control we have. Verse 13, when she saw that she was holding his cloak and he had fled, and obviously she's embarrassed, a little bit mortified, she called out to her servants, Soon all the men came running. Look, she said, my husband has brought this Hebrew slave here to make fools of us. And she began to spin this narrative where she was the victim and Joseph was the aggressor. And she began to tell a story that held weight, like way above the weight that a slave story would have. And she kept his cloak. And when her husband came home, she told him the story. Verse 19, Potiphar was furious when he heard his wife's story about how Joseph had treated her. So he took Joseph and he threw him into the prison where the king's prisoners were held. And there he remained. And so if we're keeping track of formulas, I think the formula looks more like this. Obedience plus integrity equals prison. I mean, that's the formula for Joseph, right? And this part really bugs my sense of justice. Because he did everything right. And yet he was falsely accused and humiliated. What happened to the dreams that he had? What happened to the formula that we're supposed to live by? All the right decisions, all the wrong outcomes. Does this mean God isn't trustworthy? Does this mean God no longer loved Joseph? Does this mean Joseph isn't valuable anymore? Because these are naturally questions that we would ask of ourselves if something like this happened. God, can I trust you? God, do you love me? God, am I valuable enough? And if his, Joseph's identity was wrapped up in that, it could have been devastating. And yet we see that God was with him. God was still working on his behalf. This did not decrease his value in the eyes of God. In verse 2, it says the Lord was with him. In verse 21, after he went to prison, but the Lord was with Joseph in the prison. God was still there. God was still working on his behalf. As a matter of fact, at the end of this story, when Joseph is second in command in Egypt and he's standing before his brothers that sold him into slavery, he says this, you intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. God was with me through it all. There was no formula in the life of Joseph that was going to work so that he could have control over his circumstances. 
But we like that. We like formulas because formulas offer us control. Formulas offer us safety and security. Formulas give us a path to walk on. We want that control. And yet, it's really only the illusion of control. We read at the outset who's in control of everything. I mean, can you imagine doing A plus B so that God would have to look and be like, oh, wow, now I guess I have no choice but to do this because they did those two things. I mean, look what it says in Romans. Who has given him, who has given God so much that he needs to pay it back? I read an article a few weeks ago about buttons in our society that don't work, that our society is full of buttons that don't do anything. And it talked about the crosswalk button. And it said, most crosswalk buttons don't work. One out of every 10 in New York City work. But they leave them there because it, it makes people think they're doing something. And then it talked about the closed door button in the elevator, which never works. But it gives us this sense of, OK, come on. And you know, if you hit it enough times, the door's going to close anyway. And then it said that even businesses now are putting up dummy thermostats in the office that aren't connected to anything so that people have control of the temperature. You know, if it's chilly, they can turn it up a little bit and they feel so much better. But they don't do anything. And we can kind of walk around with that same mindset. You know, what do we, what do we end up doing in our lives when we realize the buttons don't work? Are we still going to pursue those formulas? Are we still going to pursue those equations? Are we still going to pursue this idea of being in control? You see, at some point in our lives, our plan for us and God's plan for us will be in conflict. At some point in our lives, our plan for us and God's plan for us will be in conflict. What do we do in those moments? Who do we follow in those moments? Who's in control in those moments? If you're going to be a disciple of Jesus, there are going to be moments when you know that you need to stay even though you want to go, or you need to go even when you want to stay, or you want to participate in something that you shouldn't, or you know you shouldn't, you should participate, and you don't want to, or you need to speak up, or you need to be quiet. There's going to be all these moments where our plan for us and God's plan for us are in conflict. What do we do in those moments? Who's in control of those moments? Because we want that security. We want that safety. I want to give you just three things to hold on to so that our identity doesn't get wrapped up in our control. And the first is this. We need to identify the fear. Identify the fear that drives us. You see, fear fuels the desire to be in control. Our desire to be in control has an underlying cause, and it's fear. And it's fear that we aren't enough. And it's fear that our value is based on our productivity. And it's fear that others won't like us. And it's fear that we won't be taken care of to the level that we want to be taken care of. And we need to identify what that fear is. We need to confess that fear. We need to lay that fear at the feet of Christ. And sometimes that's this. Ah, OK. Here's what I'm afraid of. Which leads us to our second thing, which is trust. And I wrestled with this a little bit because to me, trust is not a great handle. It's not just something that we can hang on to because you're like, trust, thanks, what is that? 
But when we feel like sometimes we know better than God, we need to begin to trust in who God is. We need to trust God's plan. C.S. Lewis says it this way. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, in the end, thy will be done. That we need to be able to come to a place where we say, God, I know that, that I'm always trying to impose my will upon you rather than submitting to your will. But God, thy will be done. God, I trust that you are good. God, I trust that you love me. And I will trust you with my finances. I will trust you with my family. I will trust you with my future. And maybe we are even unsure of who God is. I would say, dive in, find out that God is good, that he loves you, that he speaks that value over you. And we can trust in him. And and that will cause us to be able to surrender. I would say, lastly, if we could get into a habit of daily surrender. My first prayer most mornings, not every morning, but most mornings is just this, God, I surrender to you. I surrender my thoughts, my words, my actions, and my interactions. I want to begin the day surrendering. I want to begin the day saying, God, I'm not in charge. You are. And I will follow. I will be your disciple. I don't want to be in control. You see, surrender is not passive. It's active. And surrender doesn't mean you're losing. Surrender means you're winning. And so we identify that fear. And we continue to trust. And, and then we daily surrender. And maybe that prayer is linked with this, just this motion of just unclenching your hands. I surrender to you today, Jesus. Because I know there's so many times it feels like you're sitting in the plane. And you're not really trusting the plane. You didn't see how the plane was built. And you cannot see the pilot. And you're wondering how this whole thing's going to end. But I promise you that God is good, that God loves you, and that he is in complete control. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the verse that says, yours is the majesty and the glory, that this is your kingdom, that everything moves at your command. And I pray that you would continue to be magnified in our lives, that you would continue to be bigger, that we would continue to see you for who you are. And I just want to pray blessing over this room this morning, just this blessing of trust and surrender. Give us courage, Jesus. Give us courage to unclench our hands, that our identity wouldn't rest in the things that we can manipulate, but it would rest in you. We love you, Jesus, in your name. Thank you for joining us on the Salem Alliance Church Podcast. We are a community of believers located in downtown Salem, Oregon, and we are passionate about our city being a city at peace with God. If you have a request that we could pray for, please email us at prayers at salemalliance.org. If you'd like more information about this podcast or other resources, please visit us at salemalliance.org.